Chapter 36 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Struggle on the Sea. In this account of the contest waged by our fathers, not much has been made of the war on the ocean. This does not mean that no fighting occurred on the sea, but is rather due to the fact that the Americans, having been colonists up to the time of the beginning of the war, had no navy of their own, and for protection had been accustomed to depend upon the war vessels of the mother country, which then, as she is now, was very strong in her fleets. This weakness was recognized early in the war, however, and late in the year 1775, Congress had given orders for a fleet of 14 vessels to be built as a navy, and in December of that year, Ezekiel Hopkins of Rhode Island was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the fleet. He was sometimes called Admiral and sometimes Commodore, but his title did not seem to amount to very much anyway, for less than half the vessels destined to form the fleet ever succeeded in putting out to sea. Indeed, the new Admiral had a hard time of it, for when, in April 1776, he, with three small brigs and two sloops, attacked the British sloop of war Glasgow, he was defeated in the struggle. His failure so angered his countrymen that a vote of censure was passed upon him by Congress in October of that same year, and he was soon afterward dismissed from the service, and after that time the country had neither Admiral nor Commodore. One of the captains under Hopkins, however, after fighting the British tender Edward for an hour off the coast of Virginia, succeeded in taking her, and so was the first to capture a vessel of the enemy in the Revolution. His name was John Barry, and after a brave and useful service throughout the war, he became the commander-in-chief of the Navy, that is, as far as the Navy could be said to have a commander. With their privateers, however, that is, vessels owned by private persons, but commissioned by the Continental Congress or Congress of one of the states to capture British vessels, great work was done. The idea of a navy was not entirely abandoned, but Congress had so little money and the British vessels off the American coast were so strong that it was almost impossible to do much, and the few vessels that were built were either taken by the strong and fleet ships of the British Navy, or were burned in the Hudson or Delaware River to prevent their seizure by the enemy. After Benjamin Franklin, in 1778, had succeeded in making an alliance with France, he was given a large number of blank commissions which he was to fill out as he deemed wise, and he was quick to use the permission, for he purchased many vessels in France which went forth as privateers, manned by crews in which the Americans frequently were outnumbered by the motley collection of men that made up their roles. Just how many prizes were taken by the Americans will never be known. The number, however, has been stated as 700, while those taken by the British exceeded that number by 200 or more, which certainly is not a poor showing for a weak and poverty-stricken country engaged in a war with a nation that was the most powerful on earth in its fleets. Even before Franklin had made the alliance with France, however, some work had to be done for two of the best of the privateers, the Reprisal and the Revenge, in 1777 had been cruising among the British Isles, 
and so great was the damage they did that the English merchantmen were almost afraid to set forth from their ports or to try to go to sea. It is not pleasant to relate that after this successful work, Lambert Wicks, the captain of the reprisal, with his gallant ship and all his crew, was lost off the Newfoundland coast in a storm. Of the work and the romance of Gustavus Conningham in The Revenge and The Surprise, we have already learned. The part which the devoted wife of the arch-rebel, as the British called him, took in saving the life of her husband is not the least interesting of the events in the career of the daring young sailor. John Paul Jones, however, was probably the ablest, as he was certainly the most daring, which is saying much for him, of all the American sailors engaged in the War of the Revolution. Though he was a Scotchman by birth, he had been so many times to America, and had come to feel so much at home there, that two years before the breaking out of the war, he had made his true home Virginia. He was a young man, as were most of the leaders, but he made up in daring what he lacked in experience, and in 1778 in the Ranger, he had not only captured or burned many British merchantmen, but had even taken the British sloop of war Drake, and the angry Englishmen were ready to hang him as a traitor from the yard-arms. But they had to take him before they could hang him, and that they soon found was a problem very difficult to solve. The great work of John Paul Jones was done in the year 1779. Franklin, in France, fitted out a fleet of five vessels, and the command was given to this daring little sailor. His work was mapped out to be done off the coast of Great Britain, for it was hoped that by inflicting some damage there, the British vessels might be induced to return from America, where they were free to destroy or plunder the towns on the coast. Only one of the vessels was of any respectable size, and, as that was old and so rotten as almost to be unseaworthy, it did not promise to be of any great service. The ship was Duras, formerly engaged in the India Merchant Service, but the Frenchmen bought and fitted it up changing the name to Bonhomme Richard, compliment to Benjamin Franklin, who was as popular in France as he was among his own countrymen. Although Captain Jones had a crew of 380 men, only about 100 of them were Americans, the others having been gathered from almost anywhere and everywhere. The other four vessels of his fleet were the Palace, the Vengeance, the Surf, and the Alliance the last name being really an American-built ship and named in honor of the newly formed alliance between the United States and France. To make this recognition of the friendship between the two nations still stronger, the alliance which happened to be in France at the time was placed in command of Captain Landay, who, as it proved, could not manage his own ship and would not listen to John Paul Jones, who he affected to believe was not very much of a sailor. Indeed, the captain of each vessel was almost as independent as the independent United States of America. And the wonder is not that Jones did not do more, but that he ever could have done as much as he did. Even the crews were independent of their officers, and altogether it was a strange fleet of which young Paul Jones had command when he set sail for the British coast in September 1779. For a time, the fleet kept the eastern coast of Scotland and England in alarm. Towns were threatened, some prizes were taken, and as some Spanish vessels at the same time were also threatening the same coast, the people were in a continued state of fear. 
At last, on September 23, 1779, Jones fell in with two British frigates, the Serapis of 40 guns and the Countess of Scarborough of 22 guns, off Flamborough Head. The frigates were the convoy of a fleet of 40 merchant vessels that stretched out in a long line from the head, and as soon as Jones saw the sails he signaled for a chase. The frightened merchantmen were instantly thrown into confusion, but the two British frigates approached ready for battle. Captain Landay of the Alliance immediately fled, but while the other vessels of his fleet engaged the Countess of Scarborough, Jones, with the Bonhomme Richard, advanced upon the Serapis. It was near evening, and the twilight had just disappeared when the action began, an action which proved to be one of the most desperate and bloody of all recorded sea fights. In many ways, the Serapis, in her equipment as well as in her crew, was the superior of Jones's vessel, but nothing apparently daunted the young captain. Each vessel suffered fearfully from the fire. At last, when the bowsprit of the Serapis ran between the poop and the mizzenmast of the Bonhomme Richard, in the endeavor of Captain Pearson to gain the advantage in position, Captain Jones instantly caused the two vessels to be lashed together, which made the contest almost a hand-to-hand -hand one. With pikes, with pistols, with cutlasses, the sailors fought more like demons than human beings. The two twelve-pounders of the Bonhomme Richard had been silenced, and water was pouring into her from the holes made by the 18-pound balls of the Serapis. Three nine-pounders still kept at work, and the sailors stationed in the rigging were pouring a destructive and continuous fire upon the men on the deck of the Serapis. After fighting for two and a half hours, some cartridges on the Serapis were ignited by a hand grenade thrown by one of the American sailors, and in the explosion that followed many of the British crew were blown into atoms. Each vessel was on fire three different times during the fight, and the decks were covered with the dead or wounded or with fragments of human bodies. At this time the Alliance approached and delivered several broadsides, by which not only did the Serapis suffer, but eleven of the crew of the Bonhomme Richard were killed and one officer mortally wounded. It was declared that Captain Landay had fired upon the American vessel deliberately, believing that she would be compelled to surrender and then, the Serapis being damaged as she was, he thought he might easily retake both, and thus receive a double honor. He was afterwards charged with this crime, but as many believed him to be insane, his only punishment was dismissal from the service. The flag of the Serapis had been nailed to the mast, but the struggle was now hopeless. The American vessel was almost in as bad a plight as her enemy, and the one hundred British prisoners on board were working at the pumps to prevent her from sinking. At last, with his own hands, John Paul Jones fired two of the cannon, and the main mass of the Serapis was about to fall. The vessels were cut apart, and Captain Pearson with his own hands struck his colors and surrendered the frigate to Lieutenant Richard Dale, the sturdy helper of Jones, who was the first to board her. All night long, men from the other vessels of the fleet worked desperately to keep the Bonhomme Richard afloat and put out the fires, but at ten o'clock on the following morning she sank. The fearful conflict, in which fewer survived than fell, was ended, and John Paul Jones had won one of the most glorious victories in all the history of naval warfare. 
as the English declared they would hang him if he should be taken. He had an unusual motive, born not only for the love of America, but also in his hatred for England, that had made him fight as he did. It is said that when Captain Pearson gave up his sword, he said to Jones, I cannot, sir, but feel much mortification at the idea of surrendering my sword to a man who has fought me with a rope around his neck. To which Jones, after the sword was returned, replied, You have fought me gallantly, sir, and I hope your king will give you a better ship. Afterward, when John Paul Jones heard that King George had knighted Captain Pearson for his desperate fight, the gallant commander of the Bonhomme Richard is said to have remarked, He deserves it, and if I fall in with him again, I will make a lord of him. The value of the prizes taken by Jones in this September cruise had been stated at $200,000. The wounded had been placed on board the captured Serapis, but not many hours afterwards she too sank, and then Jones, with what was left of his fleet, arrived safely off the coast of Holland. The British demanded that he and his crews and vessels should be given up to them, but the Hollanders had no love for the English, and John Paul Jones was enabled to escape to France. In the fall of 1780 he sailed for America, and after one or two minor engagements, arrived at Philadelphia in February 1781, where he received a welcome that did him honor. But the Americans were not the only ones to do him honor, however for already the rulers of France, Russia, Denmark, and Holland had bestowed marked honors upon him, given him pensions, and done many other things that might well have turned the head of the young hero. Eight years after the battle, the American Congress, they had previously voted him the thanks of the nation, ordered a gold medal to be presented to the Chevalier John Paul Jones. He was placed in command of the America, of 74 guns, but he had no opportunity to display his prowess, for the war being virtually ended, Congress made a present of the new vessel to France. Afterward, John Paul Jones entered the naval service of Russia, but it is sad to record that he died in the middle of life in Paris, in poverty and neglect. In June 1779, the British were engaged in erecting a fort at Penobscot, Maine. The force engaged in the work had come from Halifax, and General McLean was in command of the men. It was resolved in July of that year that an expedition should be sent from Boston to demolish this fort, and prevent the enemy from gaining a foothold there. It was expected that 1,500 men would go, but the response to the call was not generous, and probably not more than 900 men started, and some of those only under very strong pressure. The land forces were under the command of Generals Lovell and Wadsworth, while Saltonstall was in command of the fleet, which was composed of 19 armed vessels and 24 transports. The leaders of the militia and the commander of the fleet did not agree very well, and there were many things, such as headwinds, etc., that had hindered the movement. However, as McLean was in no condition to withstand a vigorous attack, probably if Lovell had acted promptly, the place would have been taken. He had demanded the surrender of the fort upon his arrival, but of course his demand was refused. Then Lovell began to erect a battery 750 yards from the fort, but when at last he was ready to act, his cannonade was harmless from such a distance. Plans were then made to storm the place, and McLean, 
who had received word of the doings of his enemy, prepared to withstand the attack. But at the time when the assault was hardly begun, he was astonished to discover that the militia had left their works and had gone on board the fleet. The reason for this sudden change became apparent when it was learned that Sir George Collier had arrived with six large armed vessels. The American fleet at first made ready to fight, but courage failed, and in a brief time the vessels were scattered. Some had been blown up, others captured, and the remainder were set on fire by their own men as soon as the troops landed, to prevent them from falling into the hands of the British. The whole affair was most disheartening, but the Massachusetts General Court made an investigation in which the blame was placed upon the commander of the fleet, and both General Lovell and General Wadsworth were commended for the parts they had taken. The soldiers and sailors, after landing on the desolate shore, made their way in small bands through the wilderness, suffering fearful hardships, but after a march of a hundred miles through the pathless forests, they arrived once more among their friends. In the last three years of the war, only two American frigates were in the service, and they were too small to be a serious menace to the powerful British Navy. The French fleets, with the exception of the aid given at Yorktown when Cornwallis was captured, had practically done nothing on the American coast. But though the Americans had no navy, they had skill and determination, and the account of the daring deeds of the privateers of the Revolution reads almost like a romance. Large vessels and small whaleboats, little sloops, and boats of various kinds all along the coast were constantly attacking the stronger vessels of the enemy, and many a time were successful. At least something of their boldness may be understood when, as was said at the beginning of the chapter, nearly 700 prizes were taken from the British, and though more of their own vessels were lost than they captured of the ships of the enemy, still the result, all things considered, was most remarkable for the American sailors. In the Second War with England, the War of 1812, Great Britain was astonished at the power of the despised American Navy, and the victories won on the sea in that war in a measure atoned for the many defeats on land. But that, after all, was only the harvest of the seed sown in the earlier days. End of chapter 36